All right, so we start a brand new series today. We're calling this Seriously. It's a phrase people use a lot today. You hear that probably, like, seriously, really? But James is a guy who is serious. He is a guy that we're going to meet today and learn some more about. And I thought before we got started into the one verse we're going to cover today, I thought we'd ask Mr. Seif to give us some cultural background on this whole book and setting because, uh, man, it makes a difference when you know the context, when you understand some background of Scripture, the setting, what's happening in the culture. So, Mr. Seif, give us some background on uh, the letter from James and the context and the timing. How much time do you want? You, you take what you need to. All right. Yes. Like everything else, we're looking at anglicized versions of Hebraic names. Correct. Jesus wasn't Jesus, it was Yeshua. His mother wasn't Mary, it was Miriam. He wasn't born in Bethlehem, it was Bethlehem. Nice. So there's, there's a few different James in the Newer Testament. The question of which one is it, arguably, we're looking at Jesus Christ's half brother. Yes. Uh, though there's some debate about that. Uh, the, uh, the book itself, it's encyclical is written to not to a location specific. It says to the 12 tribes that are scattered greetings. Mm-hmm. The 12 tribes aren't the Baptist, the Lutheran, <laughs> the Episcopalian. They were Jews, and there was a scattering, yeah. which might give some clue into when it was written. In Paul's biographer Luke mentions a persecution in Jerusalem proper that resulted in a scattering. Uh, this James arguably was the uh, the leader of First Baptist Church Jerusalem. Yes. <laughs> the first group. Yeah. Peter was given some kind of private place, but he traveled around a little bit. This person was location specific. He appears in the literature uh, as a spokesperson for the group later on when Paul in Acts mm-hmm. 15 visits Jerusalem. It's Peter who's the uh, decisive authority. Uh, some interesting things about him is that. Whew, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Love it. You, know, you got to get me that ringtone. <laughs> the book itself was controversial. Uh, Martin Luther called it a, quote, pissing work of straw. He, uh, <laughs> I'll stop and take that in for just a minute here. <laughs> he, he didn't believe that it should have even have been in the New Testament. He thought it would just drop in. Well, Martin Luther hated Jews, mm. which, which contributed. He was virulently anti-Semitic. Mm. Uh, but uh, Ouch. If, if, you look at, if you look at the literature uh, in James, uh, there's only two references to Jesus in the first, the very first beginning of the first chapter, the beginning of the second dropped in, blessed be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Luther thought that was interpolated, redacted, that, he was, that it was set into the text, mm. that it was principally a Jewish homily. Part of that was because, unlike other Newer Testament literature, the authors point to Jesus as the exemplar, whereas here, by way of contradistinction, the author points back to Elijah, to Job, its Older Testament characters who are examples of the kind of faith that he's looking for. Uh, other issues in the second chapter, when uh, he begins, he says, if someone comes into your assembly wearing gold and fine clothing and you say, sit here, 
and someone who's poor, you say, sit there. Uh, the, the Newer Testament renditions will say, if someone comes into your assembly, if someone comes into your congregation, but in the Greek, it's, it's, it's if someone comes into your synagogue. Mm. Uh, it's the Greek word that's used. And so uh, Luther thought, this is just some Jewish thing. Yeah. And that's given a, a Christian gloss, plus what was fundamentally problematic for Luther about the James text was in the second chapter, James says, listen, if you think your faith alone can save you for dead, mm -hmm. faith without works is dead, <clears throat> yep. and he kind of extols how he works, and that just blew all of Luther's fuses, who's yeah. coming out of <clears throat> Catholicism, yep. where there's a real premium on penitential works in the hopes of securing eternity, and Luther says, no, it's all about faith. Right. And so when he reads that, he reads that in the context of his moment. Yeah. And it's problematic for him, not realizing, of course, that when James wrote the letter, he's not living in the 1500s, yes. or coming out of Roman Catholicism. Principally, his point is, it's like you have kids, they get married, and if your daughter says, I'm pregnant, you're not going to go, oh my God, I can't believe it. Yes, you can believe it, my God, you would expect something like that. If there's a relationship, you would expect some, some kind of fruits as a result of the kind of commitments that are there. So this having works in conjunction with faith makes perfect sense, but it, it didn't abide uh, with Luther, Luther's perspective. In any case, uh, uh, it's, it's an interesting book, an interesting background, one of the earlier documents written arguably. Yeah. Yeah. A little hard to date it, um, but here in the author talks about the you know practical, uh, what we call Christian living today. Mm -hmm. I should say as an aside, it might be interesting to some. According to early church historians, uh, James was was a very pious Jew. In fact, when he died, uh, he's he's given a twenty one gun salute by the Pharisees. Interesting. Mm. Wow. Uh, uh, I say that tongue in cheek. You know, right. It's not a military firing squad, but the point is, uh, he and like them. I mean, this was the first church. They they still lived and functioned as Jews. No one told them when well, you used to be Jewish. Now you become a Methodist. Right. Uh, uh, <clears throat> that that uh, you wouldn't come up to James and say, "How long have you been a converted Jew?" He'd say, "I'm not a converted Jew. I'm a converted sinner. It's not a sin to be a Jew." They, they still live within that cultural world, and James was very much there. Yeah. It's an interesting book. I, I don't want to take your whole hour. No, it's, it's good stuff. I appreciate that. I always appreciate some input from Mr. Seif, right? It's good. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, it will help us having some background, as it does already. And I thought we would dive into basically just the first verse today and try to make some application from this. So if you read the first verse... James introduces himself. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. That's the first verse. And Mr. Seif has alluded to some of this already. But I thought we would take a little bit of a deeper dive into who James was. James was the half-brother of Jesus. So um, we know that from Scripture, that there are other family members. Jesus is part of a larger sibling group. We'll look at that here in just a moment. But Jesus is fathered by the Holy Spirit from God, and all the other siblings that come along, they're from Joseph and Mary. So he, Jesus is the one brother in the group who's a little bit different. I grew up with a half-brother, half-sister. They were older than me, so they weren't ever in the home with me. I always thought of them as brother and sister, but I always knew there was something different because they had a different father. So I can imagine that must have probably introduced just a little bit of 
maybe tension at times in the family group, in the sibling group, that Jesus is the, the half-brother. He's different than everybody else. He came from a different father, so I'm sure that had to have been interesting. We know that there was part of a large family group. James and Jesus were part of a, a larger group. In Matthew 13, you have this verse that says, is this not the carpenter's son? Is, is, not, mother, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, and here they are, James, Joseph, uh, Simon and Judas and his sisters, plural, are they not with us? So you number the list there and you know at least there's six, seven, there's more in the family. Jesus and James are part of a larger family sibling group. So that's interesting in and of itself. We know that there must have been tension within that group because we find in, J in the Gospel of John chapter 7, it says his brothers did not believe in him. So right here in the family group, the brothers are like, okay, we know you're Jesus, we know you're the brother, but this whole thing, Son of God, Savior, Messiah, they weren't with it. They didn't believe. And that had to have introduced a lot of tension, I'm sure, at times within the family grouping. Now, as we know from the letter and from other things we read in Scripture, James does come to believe. Uh, it appears that it's later in, in time, Mr. Seif, have a thought on when that happens for James? So just in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul lights upon the fact. He says he, Christ appeared to the twelve, many mentions to James, yeah. last of all, to me. So, yeah. so apparently not long after he had some kind of transformative experience. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that, I have that reference here, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. It says, after that, he was seen by James. Yeah, that's good. No, it's perfect. Uh, so uh, James sees him after he's resurrected. So apparently during this time, James is changed. He believes. He becomes a follower of Jesus. So that's, I'm sure that's kind of awkward. He becomes a follower of his brother, basically, in this sense, but he comes to believe, and he's a changed man. So whatever family tensions there must have been, whatever awkwardness there was in the home, God works in his heart. He repents of his sin, and he comes to see that the love that God has for him and, and the calling upon Jesus' life was worth it for him to follow. So that gives a little bit of context of family situation. We all are familiar with what family is like and what sibling conflict can be like from time to time. That had to have been part of James and, and, and Jesus' experience. But we also know that James is a pretty plain-spoken and practical guy. You can tell a lot about a man by what he talks about, and we can tell a lot about James by what he talks about in his letter. So you get things like these statements in his own writings where he says things like, <clears throat> don't think you're going to get anything from God if you're unstable in your faith and, and, and how you live. That's pretty plain spoken. That's not, uh, that's not the kind of glossed over, uh, be careful what you say, you know, political uh, correctness kind of speech within a church. He's like, hey, if you're not right with God, don't expect to get anything from him plain spoken James. He says things like, uh, if you're hearing and not doing what God says, you're deceiving yourself. That's pretty plain spoken. He says things like, uh, if you have faith but don't have evidence in your life that you have faith, you're not saved. That's pretty plain spoken. He says things like, uh, real faith doesn't speak blessings and cursings out of the same mouth. He says, if you have genuine faith, you won't be talking out of both sides of your mouth. You won't be uh, cursing God one moment and blessing him the next. 
He says things like uh, the fighting that you have in your life, all the conflict that you have, it's just evidence of your own immaturity. Boom. James just put it right out there in front of you. He says, without honesty and confession, there's no power in your faith. All these things are recorded in his letter, and he just says them very plainly, very straight, which is, which is helpful for us as men in this day. Somebody needs to speak some truth and speak it plain and sometimes speak it hard. So we're going to get that in this book. And so James is a man who, who comes to this place where he believes in the reality of faith. I don't want to just talk about faith, James says. I don't want to just hear about your religious concepts. I don't want to just uh, go through the motions. I want to see how it's truly lived out in life. And I want to see that, that that's happening. He says, I want to do that, and I want to make sure everybody else is doing that. So a little bit more background about our man James here. Uh, we also know from what he says here that he puts himself in a place of a bond servant. So he's a, he's a slave to God, he says. Now, uh, again, context and culture. In Roman culture, there was a lot of slaves. Uh, some estimate that uh, one-third of the Roman population were slaves, and that another third at one time were slaves. And that's hard for us to take in, uh, to think that at one point we were slaves to someone or that a third of the population are slaves. They have no rights. They belong to someone like property, that they, are, uh, they belong and they have to do what they're told. They don't get to work nine to five and then go home and have their own possessions and properties. They're, they're a slave, in, in a sense, to their owner. They belong to them. So uh, under the Mosaic law, you have some of, the, uh, of that described, but there's a different sense in the Mosaic law that describes this, uh, this place of a bondservant and what this means. So you go back to Exodus 21, uh, and it says... Um, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free and pay nothing. So there was this sense of uh, this contract of six years that you worked, but at the end of that time you were free to walk away from your position as a, as a servant or slave. But it says after that in verse 5 in that, that chapter, it says, But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. In other words, Hey, I've developed a life here these six years. I found a wife. We've had some children. Yes, we've been a servant, but, you know, our master's been good to us. Uh, he's been kind and uh, he's been gracious to us. If that happens uh, and you, you say you love your master, in verse 6 it says, Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. The person could say, I want to serve this man forever. I want to continue to be his servant, but I do so willingly out of love for him, not out of uh, I'm forced to or I have to. And the sign that he was was that his ear was pierced with an awl. So there was a hole placed in his ear. It was a symbol of his choice to be a servant to the master, but it was out of love, as it says here, not out of uh, uh, being forced in some way. And so James says, he uses the term bond servant. He says, I am a bond servant of God. I'm not doing this because I'm forced to, have to, begrudgingly. I put myself in a place of a servant to God because I love him. I want to follow him. I want to do what he says. I willingly place myself 
in this position as a, a bond servant, a slave. But he goes on in, the, in that verse 1, and he says, not just to God, uh, but he says, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this was a little bit of the separator here because he's, he's putting his servant position, his place of love in Jesus. And he recognizes him as the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the one he calls Lord. So whatever begrudging moments he might have had at home, whatever unbelief he might have had when they were younger, he has changed and he puts himself in this place of, I love this man and I love who he is and I recognize I need a Savior and that he is the Savior. He is the one I follow. He lovingly puts himself in that position, recognizes himself, and he puts out there publicly in writing for all to read and to see I love Jesus Christ. So uh, here's a man who values humility. I mean, to call yourself a slave in a culture of slaves, to call yourself a slave of God and of Jesus Christ, he is willing to put his name out there and associate himself with Jesus as a slave and a servant to him. But James also lives in a time of persecution, as Mr. Seif mentioned. <clears throat> you read through the book of Acts, it's interesting, in, in 1 and 2, you, you see that Jesus calls them to go out and to take their faith and to live it out as they go. And then they're called to even certain geographical regions, and the Holy Spirit comes and, and fills the people, and they begin to speak in languages of all those around them. And so it's this message that the gospel is meant for all. And so they, they're called to go out. <clears throat> but the transition from, <clears throat> excuse me, from chapter 1 and 2 to chapter 8 they, they don't move. They don't go. And so persecution develops. In chapter 8, verse 1, look at that. It says, And at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Now this is where James is a leader. He's pastoring the church there. And it says, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. <clears throat> so persecution has developed. It's no longer safe to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Trouble has happened. And so when we read in verse 1 that he writes to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, this is what he's referring to, that this persecution has developed, and so people are fleeing. It's not safe, so we've got to go find a place to be safe. So they are being pushed out into other regions but what it's doing is pushing the gospel out into other regions. And so James takes upon himself to write to those who have been scattered, to those who are going through trouble, to those who are trying to figure out how do we live our life, how do we apply our faith. We're going through trials and struggles. So right away you can tell from the writings that we know that James is going to say in the very beginning, chapter 1, count it all joy and you encounter various trials now you have a context for what he's talking about. These people are struggling. They're trying to figure out, man, we've just been dispersed from our homeland, from the people we've known, from the people we love, our security, our stability. We're having to find other places to live. We're trying to make sure we can stay safe and survive. And James writes to those people. And he says this to the 12 tribes. <clears throat> he loves his own people, his Jewish people who have been persecuted. They believed in Jesus and they've moved out 
and they're struggling. And so James writes to them. So you have this interesting mix where James is this very practical, very uh, straightforward, but at the same time you sense his heart of compassion and love for people. And I think you see that in his letter. And you see that even as he becomes a voice of hope. Another verse from the New Testament that describes James is from Galatians 2. Uh, It says there that, that James, Cephas, and John, they seem to be pillars in the church. They were some of the men who were recognized as leaders. These were the men who who held it all together. These are the men that the church was built upon. And so he, they become recognized as spokesmen, as their confidence, and as men who spoke peace and hope. So this gives us all a context for the book that we're about to begin. And it's interesting, after James does the setup there, I'm a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes, or to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And he says one word, he says, greetings. Hello. But it's actually the word that means peace and joy to you. In all that you're going through, I have a word of hope. I have a word of peace. I have a word of joy, gladness to give to you. So James is a man like you and I, a man who's walked through some struggles, a man who had his differences with who Jesus was, but a man who comes to believe in Jesus and a man who wants to truly practice the reality of faith and a man who wants to give hope to other people. So I hope that gives you a little bit of the background setting for uh, our study. We haven't had as much interaction today, but I hope you will at your table discussion there. There's some questions I'd love for you to talk through. Uh, Make some application. It may seem difficult to apply one verse to our lives today, but I think there is something for us here. I think there is something about what it means to be a man of God, to be called, who we identify with, as a follower of Jesus Christ. And what is it that's our message to people around us? Do we have a message that we give that's of hope and of peace? Or is the message we give off one of condemnation and uh, rules and religion? Uh, Our message, of course, is Jesus Christ, and he's the Savior. He is a word of hope for us. So uh, take some time at your table there, follow up on those discussion questions, and have someone pray when you finish up.